to dealing with a plan and then construction for the tabernacle. So there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, and the last 15 are largely dedicated to the tabernacle, both its plan and then in later kind of a repeat of that as they construct the tab- and so he- tabernacle. And so here's what's going on. Israel is gathered around Mount Sinai. Following the story of the book of Exodus so far, um, they were in slavery in Egypt. God's covenant people is special people, and God had reconstituted them by his saving acts through the plagues in Egypt. And one fell swoop, he saved his people by enacting judgment on um, wicked Egypt, brought them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where he has given his new uh, redeemed people his law. And Moses now has gone back up onto Mount Sinai, where um, he now, for 40 days and 40 nights, is getting the plans for the tabernacle of God. And so what we're going to do over the next four weeks is go into a little bit of a deep dive into the tabernacle. I would assume that most of us um, probably have never spent much time focusing on what the tabernacle was and its purpose But really, this is the pinnacle of the story of the book of Exodus. And so it's worth our time to just ask, you know, what was this and what was God doing? Um, Sometimes uh, the tabernacle is referred in different names. Uh, It is uh, the word tabernacle, what really was a tent uh, with a courtyard around it. We heard the description of That courtyard, it was a courtyard uh, made out of linen with a tent in the middle of it, a two-room tent uh, that was sectioned off with one room longer than the other. And uh, the word tabernacle in the Hebrew, uh, mishkan is the Hebrew word, literally means dwelling place. This is where God was dwelling with his people. And because it was the dwelling place of God, Um, It was also at times referred to as the tent of meeting because this is where God met with his people through the priests. It was his house. But to understand, I think, the significance of the temple and why this is really the pinnacle of the story of Egypt, of Israel's escape from Egypt, the book of Exodus, you know, I think uh, really we need to understand like, what's the significance of God dwelling with his people? We have to remember the big story, the story, capital S, of the entire Bible. The, remember the meta narrative of the Bible. We need to get back a little bit and take a three or 30,000 foot view looking down and see what God is doing when he's dwelling with his people. Right? Because the Bible really is a three act play creation, fall, new creation. Right? God with his people is a major part of that story. So if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, there is God dwelling with his people. Now, we need to, to serve, the Bible kind of talks about God's presence, right? His dwelling with his people, his presence in two different kind of ways. There's a, there's a sense in which, in one sense, God is present everywhere, right? He is omni presence. He says in Kings, 1 Kings 18, that the highest heavens cannot contain God. David says in Psalm 30, no matter where I go, I can't hide from you because you are there. The unfathomable vastness of the universe that 
scientists with the best calculations can't calculate the outer edges of the universe because God is everywhere, says, holds it in the small of his hand. You cannot escape him. Jeremiah chapter 23, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? The Lord declares, do I not fill the heaven and the earth? And so in one sense, the Bible talks about God's presence as being everywhere in all places and all times at all times. He is omnipresent. But there's another sense in which the Bible describes God's presence. He is specially present with his people. Where his people are, he is with his people and where he is present in that special unique way he is always present in an intimate soul satisfying and saving way the God who is present everywhere is present specially savingly with his people the omnipresent God Throughout the Bible, when he comes and he's with his people, there is an intimacy and a power and a comfort that is there. So when God created Eden, the God who is everywhere walked with Adam in the garden. Eden was God's special kingdom, right? He had had created this place and then he had created his special people, Adam and Eve, in his image and built his kingdom there and they were to populate that kingdom, cultivating the land and and multiplying images until God's special place covered the whole world and he dwelled with the whole earth and all of creation. But act two, Adam sinned and God's special presence with his people was now a dangerous place to be. And so to have God near in that kind of special way for fallen Adam and Eve was Dangerous, So Adam and Eve were banned from the garden and God's special presence was guarded now by an angel warrior called a cherubim with a flaming sword, lest his wrath break out on his people. But God, at three, would not leave his people in this state. He was committed to reconciling his people back to his special presence, committing to fixing the world that was broken by sin by recreating it, a place where he could dwell with his people again and the problem of sin was done away with, a new creation where brokenness and guilt and shame were no longer a part of the world that he had made and where he dwelled. And so the tabernacle is the beginning of the new creation work of God. He is dwelling with his people. In some ways, the tabernacle is like a mini garden of Eden, and it's full of that kind of imagery, that imagery that reminded Israel that paradise lost by sin is being restored by God. So the priests had fruit on their clothing, and the inside of the tabernacle's curtains was full of imagery of, uh, of, of plants and life growing Again, and the entrance to the tabernacle courtyard and the tabernacle tent faced to the east where um, Israel was, where Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. God is letting them back in now. He's going to be with his people. He was restoring. He was recreating. He was fixing all that was broken 
in the fall because he is present with his people to save them. Now follow that theme all the way through. What was begun in the tabernacle and the work of recreating what's lost and broken, this is what John's gospel says about Jesus when he shows up on the scene. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, the Bible that John had access to had been translated into the Greek. And the Greek word that's used to describe the tabernacle in the Old Testament is skenao. And this is the word that, that John grabs to say God's dwelling with us in the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus, God tabernacled. He's come full of grace and truth. And in the person of Jesus, God is present in the world. And where he is present, he is putting it back together, undoing everything that Adam wrecked by his sin. He's putting a sin-cursed world back together as he tabernacled in this world in the person of Jesus. And so when, when Jesus heals someone from disease in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled. He was dwelling there fully, fully God and fully man. And when he heals someone of disease, God is not just displaying his power. He's doing a work of new creation. Your bodies were not meant. They were not designed to be as broken and full of illness as they are. That's the fall at work in us. And so when Jesus heals, it's new creation. The, God has showed back up and he's putting the world back together. When he raises the dead, he's doing more than just showing that he has power over death. His power over death is a recreating work. God is specially present. The brokenness doesn't get the ultimate say. God conquers and recreates. When Jesus calms the seas, Lord of creation, because God is fully present, dwelling with his people taking the chaos of a broken world that fights back and is groaning, he's putting it back together. Be calm and at peace. God tabernacles, and where he is present specially, he is present specially to restore what's been broken by sin. So to have God present in this kind of way is amazing hope for us. But Israel saw in the architecture of the tabernacle, it is dangerous to have this God present with his people. And it's very costly. Egypt had experienced what it meant to have this God present. It was dangerous and costly as in their unwillingness to repent, God poured out his wrath on Egypt through the ten plagues, and then when they continued in their stubbornness and rebellion, refusing to bow their knee to this God, he brings the waters of judgment over and wipes out the entire Egyptian army, the greatest army on the face of the earth. While God is abundantly gracious, he is not a God who by any means will overlook sin. And so this is the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, it was visually and sensually amazing. It was full of sights and sounds and smells that were designed to communicate the God 
of glory is present with his people. This is a, I think this is the part of, I call this part of Exodus, the flyover territory of, of the Bible. I can't tell you how many times I have read this and just kind of glossed over. Right? The details are just mind-numbingly detailed. You probably checked out even as I was reading our passage this morning. The details are so detailed because God is clearly communicating who he is and what he's like and what he's doing in this world, but also what needs to be done for us to be in his presence. So the tabernacle was full of furniture. Every aspect of it is designed specifically to communicate. Think about when you walk into someone's house, their furniture, how they arrange their house, tells you something about their personality. Remember, my grandparents always had a formal room off to the side, um, and you never went into the formal room. That, that was just part of their culture. Now, you know, most houses are designed so that the architecture of the house communicates a more open and welcoming presence. So they're built around the kitchen. It's now the main point of the house that communicates. Their architecture communicates something about their value system and their personality. And this is what Israel would have immediately seen when the tabernacle, when they approached the tabernacle. They would have been immediately confronted with the costliness of sin. They would have known by the architecture of the tabernacle that sin had to be dealt with in order for them to dwell in the presence of God. And that the problem of sin would be very, very costly. This shows up in two ways. The layout of the tabernacle itself and then the furniture of the tabernacle. And where we're going over the next four weeks is we're going to kind of walk from the outside as the Israelites would have experienced the tabernacle all the way into the insides. And so this week, the outer courtyard. Next week, the next stage, the first room of the tent of the tabernacle. The following week, the second most intimate place of the tabernacle. And then the fourth week, the priesthood. So this week... This is what the Israelites would have seen when they first approached the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself was at the center of Israelites' encampment. They were living in tents. They were a mobile people at this time, uh, going from Egypt to the promised land. And when they lived in tents, God dwelt in the midst of their encampment. And it worked this way. The closer you got to the tabernacle where God was dwelling in his holiness the greater the requirement for holiness was. The greater it, uh, requirement for absence of sin and presence of cleanliness. You, if you got close to God, needed to be holy as God is holy. And so each of the 12 tribes were gathered in their tents around the tabernacle. And a person, in order to be in the camp, had to be ceremonially clean. So when you read through your Bible and you get to the other flyover territory... The book of Leviticus, where you just kind of check out as you're reading through it and have no idea how to read it. They're all about cleanliness. In order to be in the camp of Israel, you needed to be pure. So the weird things about touching people who are dead and bodily excretions and clothing and sacrifices all have to do with ceremonial cleanliness, holiness before the Lord. 
And the next thing that you would have seen as you approached the tabernacle, would you have met the courtyard? And the courtyard itself was like a, a long fence, seven and a half feet high, uh, the 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, roughly a little bit bigger than this room. They would have met there. Um, the courtyard walls would have been made out of linen, pillars holding them up with bases of bronze. Top would have been silver, and they hung on silver rings. And as you approach the courtyard, the, here's the first thing that you would see in the curtain. The gate into the tabernacle was guarded by cherubim. They are sewn in, too. You're coming into the presence of God. An Israelite himself, if you are just an average Israelite, could only come into the courtyard. You could not come into the tabernacle itself. The only people who could go into the tabernacle were the priests who represented the people of Israel. The next room was the Holy of Holies, where God's presence actually dwelt over the mercy seat. And so what Israel had was this, a series of graded courts where only the most pure could come the most close to God. To be near to God, one had to be holy, as clean from sin as God is holy. And if you are not, then God will cleanse you from his presence. He will always keep his holy presence clean. Doesn't, sin doesn't defile God. God cleanses sin either by pouring his wrath out on you or pouring his wrath out on a substitute. And so this is the second thing. As you approached the inside of the courtyard, you would have been reminded by the first piece of furniture of the costliness of sin. So you enter into the courtyard. You're now on the inside of the courtyard facing the tabernacle. And the first thing that you see is a bronze altar, a large altar that was always burning with fire on which grains and animals were sacrificed. The altar was about seven and a half feet square, five cubits. A cubit is roughly the length of your forearm or 18 inches, uh, give or take. And the, so the altar there burning with fire Seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet high on each corner of the altar is a horn, probably so that you could tie an animal to it so that it could be sacrificed. Halfway down on the inside of the altar would have been um, a bronze plate on which to lay, a mesh plate on which to lay the tabernacle. You can see these things, by the way, on the inside of your uh, of your worship God. The center page over the next few weeks is a detailed um, outline, detailed description, illustration of what you're looking at, right? And so the first thing that they would have met as they walked through the cherubim guarding God's holy presence would have been that sin has to be dealt with. Sin's a problem in the presence of a righteous God. As God is going to be with his people, blood had to be shed in order for his wrath to be satisfied. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin because the life is in the blood. When you let the blood out of something, it dies. So the animal would be tied to the altar and the individual who sinned would slaughter the animal because then God's wrath would be poured out. The animal had to be 
in the presence of a holy God without blemish because God requires perfection. Now, imagine what's going on here. As the Israelites are bringing their animal into the courtyard to be slaughtered for their sins, two things are going on, both confession, admittance of who they really were, and also identification. Right? So as their Israel's encamped across around the tabernacle, they would have had to take their animal with them. Right? So the worshiper would grab his choicest animal, one without any flaw, and walk it to the tabernacle. All the time as they look at this animal saying, this is what my sin costs. Blood has to be shed for it. I can't just overlook it. In order for me to be in God's presence, something has to die. And then the, the worshiper, as he enters in the gate, would present it to the priest, and the priest would examine it. And they would have stated this, I've sinned, and my sin must be dealt with by the blood. My life, my sin requires life because I've provoked God's wrath. And then in an amazing act of grace, the worshiper would take his hands and place it on the animal's head, symbolically transferring his guilt and shame to that animal who would act as their substitute. And then the person, the worshiper, would have slit the animal's throat and its blood would be poured out, laid on the altar where God's fire would consume it and the worshiper would live God's wrath would be poured out for their sin but poured out on the head of another and then follow the theme these animal sacrifices could not atone for sin they were only a symbol of what God would do You might wonder, where did they get all these animals? They got all these animals by pilfering Egypt. God gave them the sacrifice that would atone for their sins. Follow that all the way through. Hebrews chapter 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They they don't atone. They only point forward in the death of Jesus. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you've laid your hands on Jesus, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for sins, Jesus satisfied the Father's wrath on the cross. The wrath of God burned up His own Son. Have you laid your hands on the head of Jesus and transferred your guilt to Him? If not, do so. To have God near is costly. But if the cost has been paid by Jesus, God is near to save you. And that's what the next piece of furniture on the courtyard symbolized. They would have walked next, next thing that you see in the courtyard. On your illustration, square bronze altar, round basin that held water. We're, told how, we're not told how big the basin is. It's described in chapter 30, 17 through 21. Here's how it worked. The priests were to wash their hands and feet in the basin before they entered the tabernacle. And they offered their, so 
before they offered sacrifice, after they offered sacrifice, they're watching. And here's what God is symbolizing. It's not just your guilt that needs to be dealt with. Sin hasn't just made you guilty before God and provoked your wrath. He deals with that in the shedding of his son's blood. But sin has also polluted us. It's corrupted us on the inside. And that problem needs to be dealt with too. We need to be washed and made new. The pollution of sin needs to be washed out of us. Because sin is more than just the things that we do wrong. Sin is a corrupting power. It's polluted our beings. Every part of our person has been corrupted by the polluting power of sin. And that problem needs to be dealt with too. But notice the presence of the basin or the laver, a a water-filled bronze instrument resides in God's presence. God doesn't say, go clean yourself up, then come to me. He says, come to me. I'll be the one who deals with sin's guilt and its power. I will cleanse you. So it symbolized this. The cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ and the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in us. God washes us clean. He washes away our guilt and he washes away sin's corrupting power. Listen to how the Apostle Paul takes this image of washing and brings it in to what God does inside of us by his Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5. God saved us. He didn't say, go save yourselves, then come into my presence. Come into my presence, I'll save you. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that word for regeneration literally means in the original language, new creation. A new start, a new beginning. The old's passed away. Look, the new has come. This is what it means to belong to God, to have him specially present. He doesn't just deal with the pollution of sin's guilt. He washes us on the inside and makes us a new person. So the altar and the basin show these two realities. I'll deal with my wrath on the head of another. And I'll deal with your broken heart, your sin-cursed person, by washing you and making you clean on the inside. Let me close with this. As you walked in to the next room, the first room of the tabernacle, those who had been washed clean, whose wrath had been satisfied, God's wrath had been satisfied, laid their hands on the substitute would have come in and had the tree of life on one side and a table on the other. God was there to eat with his new people, to be specially present in an intimate, soul-satisfying way. And so we come to the table. We're going to sing in a minute, and then we're going to eat with God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, We have no hope unless that hope is on the head of Jesus. He is both the sacrifice and the basin.
He's both a high priest who offered himself and has given his spirit that we could be made new. Help us, O oh Lord, to walk in hope and joy. To walk in humility. To walk in confidence. Because you are not only amongst us, you are in us. And we are your new tabernacles. As we come to the table, we do so because you've made a way through the living veil that is Jesus. And so we pray in his name. Amen.